Good morning. You look good. You do. Welcome those of you who are joining us from home. You look good too. I just can't, can't see you. So welcome you um, as we gather together as God's people uh, to worship him and to allow him to speak to us. Uh, today specifically is Daniel Red. We're going to be in John chapter 11. Um, if you want to go ahead and follow along in your own Bible or on your phone or your, your tablet or gadget, whatever you've got, go ahead and turn there. Um, just a quick reminder of the all-member meeting this afternoon at 5 o'clock. Um, first of all, even though it's called an all-member meeting, we invite our members. Uh, we expect our members to be there, but we also invite those who are thinking about making Solid Rock their home. Uh, this is a time to learn more about what God is doing behind the scenes. We'll look at the year ahead and look at the new building and all those sorts of things. There'll be a lot of time for Q&A. Somebody asked me, how long should I expect to be there? Okay, well, our target's about an hour, hour and a half, but with Q&A, never know. And uh, so hopefully you'll make it uh, to that meeting. But at 4.30, so about 30 minutes before that meeting starts, we're going to be doing some tours of the new building, uh, just walking you through that space so you can see the progress and maybe just get a better idea of what it's going to look like once we get in there. And then we'll be talking about the timeline for getting in there as well. So all that's this afternoon. All right, so we're uh, in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. It's going to take us at least three weeks to get through this chapter. Um, this is a story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. On the surface, it seems like a pretty straightforward, simple story. But I think as we'll see today, there is so much embedded in this story. And, and today what we're going to look at are the themes of love, of light, of risk, and glory. Just in the first 16 verses before we ever get to the part where Jesus actually raises Lazarus from, from the dead. And so just to lay some context that will help you better understand uh, the verses we're going to look at today... Keep in mind, last week we ended chapter 10 with um, a plot to kill Jesus, arrest him and stone him. He, he walks out of that plot, returns back to the area where John the Baptist was baptizing and many believe in his name there. That's important because see what has been happening over the last few chapters is there's been this growing animosity and opposition and confrontation towards Jesus and his followers. And now today, as we move into chapter 11, we're specifically seeing Jesus interacting with those who believe, those who are followers, those who have a loving relationship with him. And so as we think about who we are as the church, like this is where we come into the story. Those of us who have claimed to believe, claimed to follow him, claimed that he is our Messiah and our Savior. So verse one, we read this. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters, that's Mary and Martha, sent to him Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, said, heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, just a helpful word to you as a Christian, as you read the Bible, there will be things that catch you off guard. That's what's happening in those moments when you read something in the Bible and it catches you off guard. Um, one, you take a step back and make sure you're reading it correctly. But if you still feel that way, what is potentially happening is God is correcting a misconception that you have. He's taking a, a previous thought and he's shaping it. He's transitioning the way you think, but more importantly, he's conforming you into the image of Christ. And I'm saying that because there are several things about these 16 verses that catch me off guard and, and presumably will catch you off guard. 
And so the first thing we read here is um, the context for this miracle that Jesus is going to perform is that it has to do with the family who he's intimately involved with. So Lazarus, his sisters, Mary and Martha, were not just three random strangers who he runs into somewhere. These were three siblings who he already had a relationship with. Starting with the sisters, we're introduced here to Mary. She was the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, what's interesting is that hasn't happened yet in the timeline of the narrative of the Gospel of John. That actually happens in the next chapter. John is mentioning it here, assuming that for his readers, they would be familiar with that story. It was such a popular story. But I think more than that is what John wants us to see is this was a family whom Jesus was was intimately acquainted with. Matter of fact, what is the message that the sisters send? Our brother who you love is ill. I want to talk for a minute about this love, this love relationship that Jesus has with Lazarus and with his sisters, and talk a little bit about the original language, because as you may know from being in church in the English language, we have the word love, and we mean a whole lot of stuff by it, right? You have to know what's the context and who's saying it to whom, and like we can mean a lot of things from I love chocolate to I love my wife, right? And we mean different, I hope you mean different things by that, right? But in the Greek language, there are many words that we translate into love. I'll just give you a few examples. The word uh, Uh, eros, which is more of like a romantic, physically intimate kind of love. It's that passionate kind of love. It's oftentimes the most frequent thing we mean by the word love when we talk about our marriages, although it's not the word used by the Bible to describe the love in our marriages. We talk about falling out of love, right? We're talking about the passion is dwindled. We're talking about eros. There's another kind of love that that was was a description of the relationship between two really good friends or two brothers, and it was phileo. Okay, this is the idea like behind the the city Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's that love relationship that two people have for one. It's not romantic. It's the kind kind of love you would expect like soldiers to have for one another or brothers to have for one another or sisters to have for one another. Then we have... Um, what's most often used to describe God's love is agape or agapao love, okay? And this is just, in the purest sense, it just means to be faithful to someone, okay? But what's interesting here is, although God's love is most often referred to as agape, right? Just pure faithfulness towards the objects of his love, John uses the word phileo to describe Jesus's love for Lazarus. He's illustrating for us just how close Jesus is with Lazarus. That he not only loves him with this agape or agapao love, but he loves him intimately like one brother loves another. Here's why that's gonna be helpful for today. Because already in what we've read, we've read that somebody uh, who Jesus loves intimately, like a brother loves a brother, who's part of this family that Jesus knows intimately is ill and ill to the extent that he may die And Jesus says what? This illness does not lead to death, but it leads to what? The glory of God. Which is gonna bring about some really heavy questions about God, isn't it? Is there room for God in his love to allow people who he claims to love, first of all, to suffer, to go through illness, to go through hardship, potentially even to die? And second to that, Can God still be loving if he allows people he claims to love to go through suffering for the purpose of his own glory? 
So we're going to unpack all this today as we move through the text. Now, I've heard it said that that sounds like an arrogant God, a God who would want to do things for his glory, to glorify himself. And if we kind of unpack that, we think about what does that mean to glorify? So the idea of glorifying God, and just to put it in simple terms, means to like make much of him, to lift him up in such a way you're, you're bragging on God. So in our all-member later, meeting later today, I'm going to ask you for any kind of testimonies of God's goodness. And essentially what we're asking for is brag on God for a minute. Point to something over the last year where God's been good to you and or your family. Let's brag. Let's make much of him. We're going to glorify him through testimony. We can do that through our songs. We can do that through a lot of things in our life. But essentially it just means to make much of him, right? Well, when we think about it in human terms, it sounds kind of arrogant, doesn't it? Or conceited that, that someone would want to make much of themselves. And see, the reality is that in human terms, it is sinful. And let me just kind of, let me just tell you why. We aren't quite as cool as we think we are. We aren't quite as wise as we think we are. We aren't quite as good as we think we are. We are masters at giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt and then casting judgment on others. And I'm seeing a lot of parents in the room going, yeah, right. Not as cool as I think I was. Now, when we were 15, 16 years old, we thought a lot of ourselves, didn't we? And then we became adults. We're like, oh, yeah, I'm not as cool as I think I am. And then we look back on our life and go, you know what? I made a lot of dumb mistakes, which means what? I'm not as wise as I would like to think that I am. And so in a biblical sense, Romans 3.23 is this, this stark reminder. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So for, from a human perspective, it's, it's not only arrogant, it's sinful to make much of ourselves, to glorify ourselves. But what about God? Where does this leave God in the mix of the equation? So here we have Jesus saying, I'm allowing Lazarus to suffer with an illness that may actually end in his death. I want to talk about that for a minute, because what does he say? This illness uh, is not unto death. And essentially what he's saying is this illness is not aimed at death. He's not saying Lazarus won't die. And actually what we're going to find out, just to kind of timestamp this. So Lazarus gets really sick to the extent where his sisters are like, we got to have Jesus here now. The problem is Jesus is a day away. So they either write down or send a verbal message with a messenger to where Jesus is at. So this is the next day after the message has originated. So that by the time he's hearing it, right, the disciples don't know, is he alive? Is he dead? Like by the time we get there another day away, that's two days away, he may already be, be dead. But Jesus is not saying that this is not going to at some point cause Lazarus to die. We're going to see in a minute. He's already dead, actually. He died within 24 hours of this message going out. But what Jesus is essentially saying is this illness is not aimed at death. That's not the purpose. There's a greater purpose that's going to be served through this illness and through this death. And this is the greater purpose. It is that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's heavy, isn't it? Especially when we think about our own lives. Difficulties we go through, suffering we experience, illnesses, tragedies. Where's God in this? How can God be loving and still allow this to happen to me? And I think it's really important then to understand why John, the gospel writer, wants us to see Jesus' intimate relationship with this family. These were not just random strangers. They weren't just people who they passed along the road. These were siblings, a family who Jesus knew intimately. A matter of fact, as we think about Jesus' phileo, brotherly love, 
for his followers. It's in John 15. We'll get to this in a few weeks in chapter 15, but I'm going to read a little bit of it where Jesus describes his love this way. This is verse 12. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So whatever kind of love God has for us, we love that. We extend that love towards one another. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Of course, he's talking about himself first, that Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his created objects. He laid down his life for those whom he would refer to as friends. He says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And so when we think about Jesus loving us with phileo, brotherly love, it doesn't diminish his deity. What it does is it shows us that his deity is knowable. His, his deity is approachable. We can walk not in a far off relationship with God, but we can walk in an intimate relationship with God. The same kind of love that Jesus has for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he has for us. He has for you this kind of love. Now, in verse five, we'll pick this up again. Once again, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So as if we haven't picked up on that theme already, John writes it again, this time using agapao, like the agape kind of love, that pure, faithful kind of love. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why does he go to the extent to write this? I think it's because he didn't want us to lose sight of that. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that catch you off guard? That's not what we would expect a brother to do for a fellow brother, is it? That's not what we would expect for one friend. Like if you call me and you say, Jason, I've got an emergency. The expectation is that I drop what I'm doing and I come to your aid, right? That's what we would expect brotherly love to look like. Whatever you need, if you're in need, I'll drop whatever I'm doing and I'm there for you. It's not what Jesus does here. Now, what's interesting, there are different thoughts on, on this timestamp on what's happening here. And one would be that, well, maybe Jesus was planning on staying for a full month. And so this is John's way of saying he loves Lazarus so much, he's cutting his trip short. There was some who would say it kind of looks like a delay tactic. Like he's just like, meh, we'll get to that in a couple of days. Now, I don't want to presume either one of those. As a matter of fact, I think the real uh, purpose of this is really just to timestamp it. So think about it. Mary and Martha send a message. Jesus receives it the next day. By the time Jesus receives it, we're going to see Lazarus is already dead. He's going to stay how many more days? Two more days. Now we're on the third day. How long is it going to take for him to get to the village where Lazarus is? Another day. Four days. Right? So Lazarus is not in a coma. He's not just like, you know, when you get the flu and you just want to lay in bed all day and just sleep. No, he's, he's going to die. And by the time Jesus raised him from the dead, he will have been dead for days. He is dead, dead by that point. And I think that's why John is time stamping it as he unfolds the story. We get to verse eight, actually verse seven before we get to eight. Then, he, then after this, he, and his disciple, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now this is really gonna bring up now this idea of risk. Because in context of the whole gospel, Judea is where they just came from. What's, what's there? Pharisees who want to arrest Jesus and stone him. And so as this unfolds, I want you to try to think about 
the tension and the anxiety of the disciples as we were working through John 8, John 9, John 10, there was this consistent confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus handles it really well. It doesn't seem to rattle him or shake him. He's good. But think about the disciples. You're following this guy. And he continues right, to say things that is making that group of people mad. And they want to kill him. And they want to kill us. And now, as chapter 10 enters, you go back to where John was baptizing, where people love you and they believe in you. And it's like, whew, man, relief, finally. Ah, we can breathe. We can sleep good. We don't have to sleep with one eye open anymore. And so Jesus says, hey, guys, um, we're going to go back. We're going back to Judea. And this will set the tone for what follows in verse 8. The disciples said to him. Now, what we don't know is... Which disciples said this? Was it all of them? Was it some of them? But John, the one writing this, is a disciple. And as this unfolds, he wants you to know, this is what we were all thinking. Okay? So he says, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? This is, this is disciple talk for, are you kidding me? Why would we, like... We just escaped death. Why in the world would we go back? And Jesus answers with an interesting answer. He says, here's my answer. Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Really, two things are happening here. First of all, this reference to 12 hours in a day, that was a first century Jewish reference to daylight. Sun up to sundown. That would have been another way to say that. And what Jesus is saying is like, he's using it as a metaphor. Say, hey guys, if you're going on a journey, you travel in the day. Why? Because you don't want to trip and stumble, right? But if you travel at night, what's going to happen? You're going to stumble over things. And so what Jesus is talking about essentially here is, hey guys, listen, I, I, I know where I'm going and I know what I'm doing. And, and so then what he adds to that, though, is this. He says, um, not only if anyone walks in the day, uh, he does not stumble, but here's why. Because he sees the light of this world. Now, what's important about that is that just a few chapters ago, Jesus referred to himself as the light of this world. And when we take a step back and we look at all of John's writing, this metaphor of light is a really important thing he wants us to grasp. I'm just going to give you a few, few references here. Uh, first off, in the gospel begins in chapter 1 with these words, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Talking about himself, or talking about Jesus, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John chapter 3, where we find John 3.16, just after John 3.16, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so we get, begin to get this understanding of not only that Jesus is the light of the world, but what he means by that. And so Jesus essentially is describing not just the 12 hours of the day, but that reference is a, is, is a reference to him coming into our world. His entire earthly mission is the 12 days of light. He is the light of the world. You seeing that here? 
I am the light of the world. As long as I'm with you, you will have the light. But then he talks about how those who are walking in wickedness, they hate the light. Why? Because their deeds are exposed. Now, you and I, if we're going to be real honest, isn't that why we hide things? Isn't that why we allow shame to, 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 to keep secrets and to embed secrets in our hearts, things that we would never share with somebody else? Why? Because we don't like the light. We don't want to be exposed. Jesus in John 8 says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So now we begin to see that there's a connection between walking in the light and following him. And probably most vividly, and I think probably the best explanation of this use of light comes from a, a different letter that John writes. So towards the end of your New Testament, you have these letters by John, referred to as like 1 John or 2 John. And he continues this theme going as he's writing these letters. And in 1 John uh, chapter 1, he talks about this idea of God being the light, but he brings us into the equation. Listen to this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And what John is talking about here is really this idea of having fellowship with God is intimately connected to walking in the light. You can't have one without the other. You can claim to have fellowship with God, but if you're not walking in the light and you're walking in darkness, you're actually lying. Think about that. And so here now, there are a group of people, disciples, who have already professed to believe in Christ, and he's saying to them what? Guys, I'm inviting you to walk in the light. Just like there's 12 hours in a day, and that's when we travel. Listen, I'm with you. You can trust me. You can follow me. That the second I speak about returning to Judea, you're thinking about the risk. You're thinking about what it might cost you. So I want to have that in mind as we work through the rest of these verses today. Because Jesus says this, if anyone walks in the night, he's going to stumble. And the light is not in him. Now, moving forward into verse 11. After saying these things, he, Jesus, said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, I don't know fully why John includes this part of the story, but I think what he's doing, he's reiterating this fact that the disciples' first response to going back to Judea is hesitation. They're thinking about the risk. They're thinking about what it could cost them, and so they're looking for any excuse, any reason to not go. Look at what they, how they respond. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, then he'll recover. Why bother? If he's just sick, if he's just asleep, why in the world would we put our lives at risk to go there and to be with him? In verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his, Lazarus' death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has die. So earlier on in this chapter, the same conversation when Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, it's not at all meaning what? That Lazarus isn't going to die. It just means that Lazarus's death is pointing at, it's aiming at something else. There's a bigger reason, there's a higher reason for Lazarus's 
illness and, and his death. So plainly he says here in verse 14, guys, listen, Lazarus is dead. But look at what he says next. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Does that catch you off guard? That's not what we would expect a friend to say about a friend who has just died, is it? We would expect him to say, guys, and I am sad that I am not there. I'm sad that we're so caught up in what we're doing here that we aren't there. I'm so sad that because I'm having to explain things to you, I'm not on the road headed there right now. But he says what? I'm actually glad I was not there. Now we're gonna see in a couple of weeks when we get closer to the raising of Lazarus from the dead that Jesus did have a sadness in his heart. Matter of fact, Jesus is going to cry. He's going to weep over the death of Lazarus. So this is in no way invoking this idea that Jesus doesn't care. I think that's why John goes to great lengths at the beginning of the chapter to say, listen, this is a caring relationship. This is a brother relationship. This is not happening to somebody that Jesus did not know, that he wasn't familiar with. This is a family that Jesus loved. And yet at the death of Lazarus, Jesus says to his disciples, guys, I am glad I was not there. So we've got to keep reading, don't we? So that what? So that you may believe. Let us go to him. I want to stop there for just a minute. And then we're going to look at Thomas's response. So there's an illustration that's been used um, in, in preaching in churches for years to try to illustrate the idea of, of not just faith, but faith that gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, and, and the one that's most commonly used is, has a tightrope across the uh, Niagara Falls, and there's a wheelbarrow, and you may have heard this illustration. I was thinking personally about my own life and examples of, of, of where this has played out for me, the difference between just believing something and then like really trusting something. And uh, over, it was about 20 years ago, I went skydiving with a friend, okay? So I'm not one of those people who went skydiving because I thought it would be awesome. I'm one of those people who went skydiving because I wanted to be able to tell people I'd been skydiving, okay? So that just... Just want to make sure you're clear on that. But I'll, I'll never forget the skydiving experience, but probably what stands out most in my mind is the, the, the preparation for it. The training, sitting in the class, and there's the instructor, and the instructor's doing everything they can to put your nerves at ease and convince you that they know what they're doing. And, but they're cutting jokes, like, yeah, I've seen this before on TV. I think this strap goes here, and, you know, making all these lighthearted jokes. And you're like, <gasps> but at the same time, they're like, hey, guys, really, I know what I'm doing. And so to prove that, they show us video footage of them skydiving. And so we can see it with our own eyes so that we can say, you know what? They actually have done what they're claiming that they can do. And so it's like, okay. And so there's this internal battle. You're like, should I trust this joker or not? And so eventually I got to the point, like, okay, I'm gonna trust this guy. It looks like he knows what, he's alive. I see him in the video. He's jumping out of the plane with somebody strapped to him. It looks like they live. I see him on the ground, okay, right? But it's a whole other story when you get into the plane. You got your harness on. If you've ever done this, tandem jump, he's got his harness on. You get on the plane, the plane starts, you get ready to take off and he clicks in. And that's where he takes his harness and he clicks it into your harness. You know what? My life is now in his hands. Right, so that takes, I believe he can do this to, I trust that he can do this. Are you with me? That's a whole other level of trust and belief. And so as Jesus is talking to his disciples here, these are men who've already claimed they believe. 
These are men who've already said, we're staking our life on the truth that we believe you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, okay, cool. Well, we're gonna go back to Judea, the place where everybody wants to kill us. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can we talk for a minute? Is it absolutely necessary that we take that kind of risk to go back there for Lazarus? And so here Jesus is making this statement. I am glad Lazarus got ill and died. Why? So that you may believe. So that at whatever level you trust me right now, you might trust me more. Now I think it's super helpful to take this in context of everything Jesus has said. In chapter 10, this is where Jesus, talking about being the good shepherd, makes this proclamation that he has authority over life and death. And he says it this way. He says, listen, nobody's gonna take my life from me. I will lay it down and I will take it back up again by my own authority. These disciples were there in Judea when he said that. And they watched him say it to a group of men who wanted to kill him. Whew, quit provoking, quit poking the bear. Jesus, can you just... They heard him say these words and they're still following him. But now, right, we're about to put belief to the test, aren't we? Do you really believe that he will put his life down by his own authority and take it back up again? Do you really believe he has authority over life and over death? Now we're gonna look at Thomas's response and there's a lot of debate about what's going on in Thomas's heart here. I'm gonna read it, let's talk about it. So chapter 11, verse 16, the Gospel of John, so Thomas called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, so he turns away from Jesus to the other guys, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, what's hard about this verse is we don't know if this was a courageous proclamation from Thomas to call the other guys to step up to the plate, or if this was a statement of sarcasm and defeat. (sighs) Come on guys, let's just go. We're gonna die too, let's just go, right? We don't know that primarily because John, the gospel writer who was part of the disciples, he is notorious for selling out his fellow disciples. He'll tell on Peter in a heartbeat. He'll sell him out. Matter of fact, when he's talking about the resurrection, he says, man, only two, there were two disciples who made it. He he also refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he says, oh, by the way, there were two of us running to the tomb to see the, 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 the empty tomb. It was Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. And just so you know, I outran Peter. Like he would just sell out the other disciples in an instant. So on one hand, you could say, looks like he's just showing Thomas's sarcasm and this statement of defeat. Well, let's just go die with him. Or it could be that this is a courageous statement. Here's, here's the point. Either way, this, this should be the statement of those who follow Christ. Regardless of where Thomas's heart was in this moment, the appropriate response to your savior who calls you to take risk for his sake, for his glory should be, let us go that we may die also. You're right, they may take his life in Judea, but let us go that they will take our lives as well. And so regardless of where Thomas's heart is, that is the appropriate response of one who believes and trusts in Jesus. One who believes that Jesus has authority over life and death. One who believes that Jesus loves you with an agape love and with a phileo love. Right? Like, what a beautiful insight into the heart of Jesus. And so then we come back to these themes of love and 
and, and light and risk and glory. And we ask, what's going on here? I think it's helpful to talk for a minute about risk itself and the way that our current culture views risk. And those of you who are like Gen X and older are probably gonna relate a little bit better to what I'm about to describe. But if you're younger than that, just trust me, okay? Our culture's perspective on risk and safety has changed dramatically in the last 30 years. So when I was a kid, I belonged to one of those generations where parents just assumed that risk was okay. I'm 12 years old, headed out into the pasture with my cousin who's 13. We both have loaded guns over our shoulder for a day of hunting. Like, right? The, great, the greatest struggle I had in life was bicycle tires that had air in them. Get on your bike and go. Be home by dinner. We just went. Risk was assumed. Life is risky. Right? And so that has morphed a lot in the last 30 years to a place where now it's not only not cool to let your kids take risk, it's immoral to place your kids at risk. And so we've redefined things like safety and risk. And what we now mean by the word risk is, is discomfort. Like it is now a moral virtue that you don't allow your children to become uncomfortable. Try it and you'll get Facebook shamed like that. Letting your kids fail. Letting your kids wrestle through their own struggles. We used to call it um, helicopter parenting, right? Where moms are always hovering around their kids trying to keep them all safe. And, and now it's called bulldozer parenting or snowplow parenting, where parents get out in front of their kids and just bulldoze a path of safety and comfort for their kids. And so it's hard for us as, you know, 21st century Americans to understand taking this level of risk, putting your life at danger. Why would Jesus call the disciples to risk their lives if he loved them? It's because God's understanding of risk is different from our current culture. And I don't think in any way Jesus is saying, hey, go out there and be an idiot and put your life in jeopardy intentionally. But what I think Jesus is saying is that you can trust me. When I call you to take risk, it is worth it. And following Jesus, listen to me, church, is not safe and comfortable. It's risky. And you think about these disciples in this moment. The fear of risking their lives potentially is gonna keep them from following Jesus, right? Ah, let's don't do this. But think about the modern day context, how we allow discomfort to keep us from following Jesus. I don't wanna be uncomfortable. You might not like what I have to say. I don't wanna make you uncomfortable. It's too risky. And so here we see together these themes stitching together. Jesus loving Lazarus intimately and still allowing him to suffer to the point of death. His disciples who've left everything to come follow him. He's invited them to take a journey back into the uncharted territory of the unknown, back to a place where people want to kill Jesus and the disciples. And through it all, two messages are coming out. I love you, and this is for my glory. I want you to think about that for a minute. It's not only loving for Jesus to glorify himself. It is one of the most loving things he can do to make much of himself in your mind and your heart. 
Like it's one of the most loving things he can do here. Think about the perspective of Lazarus. Evidently he believed in Jesus, he loved Jesus, but think about Lazarus post-resurrection. <laughs> now I know you mean it, Jesus. Like before I had the t-shirt that said, you have authority over life and death, but now it's written on my heart. Think about that. The disciples who a few days before were listening to Jesus confront the Pharisees saying, I have a power over life and death. They're seeing it now with their own eyes. What a gift. Listen, it is not arrogant or conceited for Jesus to make much of himself because he delivers on what he promises. It is to your good and my good that he makes much of himself. And his love for you and his love for me means that he, is, he will allow us to go through suffering, hardship, difficulties, Moments that make you doubt, that stretch whether or not you really believe. Like, are you willing to click on to Jesus kind of believe? Put your life in his hands kind of believe. For the sake of his glory and our good. It is to our good that our Savior glorifies himself. Church, this is why he calls us together together once a week. Come together as the saints of God to do what? Make much of him. To once again take our hearts and click into him right? To once again remind ourselves of what we believe, right? Because we walk in like disciples who want to believe, and the, and the goal is that we leave out of here assured once again that the gospel is true, assured once again that Jesus has life, power over life and death, assured once again that he is our only hope in a world that is floundering. We need that, don't we? We need that. And so this is what Jesus is doing here it's gonna take us a couple weeks to get to the point where he actually raises Lazarus from the dead. And what an important moment to stop and ask ourselves some really important questions. I want you to think for a minute. I don't care if you're nine years old or 90. If you're at home or if you're sitting in this room, think back over your life. And I want you to think about some of the difficult things you've been through that have potentially and maybe even caused you to doubt God's love for you. Just want you to think about a couple of those things. Think about something hard. Maybe you're in it right now. And it's causing you to question God's love for you. How could God allow this to happen to me if he really loved me? And I want to ask you to do something even harder. I want you to look back on those moments and I want, to look, I want you to look for hints of his goodness in those things. Evidence of his glory. Evidence of his love for you. And then finally, I want you to think about this, knowing that Jesus not only loves Lazarus and his sisters with this intimate friendship love, but he loves you that way. How does that transform your view of God? How does that impact the way you see God? And I wanna spend some time praying for you. And at this point in our services, what we hope happens is that in whatever ways God has spoken to you today, through singing or through his word, that you would take some time to take inventory of that, write it down if you need to, but more importantly, respond to that in whatever way he's calling you to respond. So we're gonna pray now and we're gonna ask the worship team back up and then we're gonna respond. So let's do that together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we're thankful that your word includes hard teachings about hard things. And Father, we confess that we struggle to see your goodness and your love in stories like Lazarus' story, especially when it happens to us. 
But today you have shown us once again that God, in your love for us, you allow us to go through difficult things that we might see you more clearly and believe in you and trust in you more deeply. God, that's our prayer before we leave here today. Father, our faith in you would be deeply rooted in Jesus who has authority over life and death. So now we ask for your Holy Spirit to move through this room to speak to us, convict us where there is sin, encourage us where we are discouraged, heal us where we are broken. Father, we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.